You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. For coming tonight for Writers Live with Anthony Mull in the beautiful African American Department of Central Library. Tonight we're excited to welcome the talented Anthony Mull, author of Out of Step. He's going to read, take some questions, and then the Ivy Bookshop has his memoir for sale in the hallway. Anthony Mull is a Baltimore-based writer and educator. His creative work has appeared in Gertrude Journal, Jubilat, Jubilat, and more. Maul holds an MFA in creative writing and publishing arts and has taught writing at both public and private universities. In Out of Step, Maul considers reinvention, disassociation, and behaviors you can't escape, all against the backdrop of being a queer service member in the era of don't ask, don't tell. While reading, I asked myself, we can tell our stories in our own way, but what do those stories mean as our situation changes? Out of Step explores personal mythology while Maul escaped into adulthood and considered how language and values are a part of his role. Every word in the memoir matters, like the lives ending from war. There's one passage in the middle of the book about a fellow service member that struck me as so beautiful. Maul wrote, He was something to me, though. A moment, a comrade, a model for living. He was one of many men I would meet over the years who I stole a tiny bit from, a small piece of being that would help me complete the puzzle of what it means to be oneself, queer and whole. Probably because this is how I've looked to Anthony as a fellow writer. So please welcome Anthony Mall. Thank you so much for that. Um... I have notes here. I, I don't know if you know this about me. I, I write down my banter, like when I'm reading. I, <laughs> I'll always forget it or freeze up, so I write down my, my banter and comments here. Um, I want to first say thank you to everybody who made this possible, so thank you to the Pratt. Thank you to the Ivy and their salespeople out there um, for bringing the book. Um, thank you to Tracy Diamond specifically. Um, and to all of you for being here tonight, for, to hear me read. You could be anywhere else in the world right now, and you're here with me. I appreciate that. It's a Jay-Z reference. Um, Tracy plugged a bunch of really great stuff going on. I also want to point out two cool things I noticed. April Ryan is coming September 11th. That's amazing. If you don't know April Ryan, she's one of the most important um, people in the media we have right now. Um, and also really cool, there's a free Nox, uh, Noxalone. Is that how you say it? Anyone? Loxin training coming up. If you don't know, it's um, first aid for people who are overdosing. It can save lives, and it's really cool training that everyone should have. I'm going to read two short pieces today, um, and I thought I'd read... Actually, one's kind of a long piece, and one's a short piece. And they're from the front of the book, and that means you don't need a lot of context for them, except for the fact that the book, it sort of jumps around. It... um, it's not directly linear. It sort of jumps around in time, but it's also a study in genre and form, so I use a lot of different forms of nonfiction throughout the book. And this first piece is called Marx, um, M-A-R-K-S, not Marx is in The Great Thinker. Um, and it, 
it does that. It's really representative of sort of the shape and the pace of the book. So I'm going to read that first. Um, I will give uh, just some some content warning, trigger warnings. This first piece does engage in sort of colonial thinking and outright Islamophobia in one part of it, and I want you all to be aware of that. Um, It's Marx. I grew up with the same mythologies as other dumb American boys. Yet when I picture the statue of David, I do not picture Michelangelo's 17-foot-tall marble masterpiece. The milky figure is a breathtaking study in masculine form, but the sculpted nude has never seemed to fit my image of the young David who left tending his father's sheep and faced the warrior Goliath. He's too beautiful, too fully formed. This David is not the youngest child of Saul. This David is a young man, a college quarterback, an Olympic swimmer. Now, Donatello's David, that's my David. Donatello gives us an effeminate and delicate boy, hand on his hip like some bratty bottom. He is just shown, he's shown just after battle, Goliath's severed head at his feet, beard exfoliating David's toes. But it's easy to see that this sculpture shows a boy on the brink. Rather than Christ-like abs, the bronze David wears a boyish paunch and effeminate hips. His body appears soft, his demeanor gentle and shy. He seems nymphic, right leg tilted almost coquettishly. On one of the wings of Goliath's great helmet creeps up the back of David's leg, stopping just shy of where the curve of his backside meets his thighs. The whole scene seems so boyish and queer that even art historians recognize its homoerotic qualities. This unmarked body, not yet sculpted by hardship, a girlish boy mixed up in someone else's war by folly and by childish pride. That's my David. I'd like to say that I joined the military unmarked, that I arrived at the military entrance processing station, a multi-purpose facility that acts as everything from a clinic for physical exams to an administrative office for processing those entering the military as young and pure as a Renaissance bronze. Yet the truth of my enlistment is that the physician inspecting my young body with latex gloves missed neither the tiny scar on my forehead where I had fallen from the top bunk onto a Tonka truck as a child, nor the dime-sized Mongolian blue spot decorating my backside. Yet aside from these minor blemishes, my young, soft body raised a hand and swore the oath of enlistment without any real damage at 18. It goes to sections here. First, teeth. The first mark came early. As my platoon huddled together celebrating a well-run obstacle course in the middle of our basic training experience, a helmet-clad head jerked back toward my face, sending a good portion of my front teeth to the back of my throat. Before basic training, er, sorry, being, basic training being the frenzied experience that it is, the emergency dentist at the clinic asked if I was experiencing any sensitivity in the injured teeth. Me being in no pain and terrified of the backlash my drill sergeant should I miss training, I insisted I felt fine and walked around for the remainder of basic training and the several weeks that followed looking like Lloyd Christmas. Eyebrow. I crawled slowly through the Southern California hills avoiding a ridgeline and staying low to the ground in my foliage-decorated ghillie suit. Slow is fast, I repeat in my head, a mantra of the week's training. I found my spot slowly, deployed the rifle slowly, took slow aim, breathe, 
breathe, breathe, squeeze. The sniper rifle cracked sharply. The scope mounted atop the receiver snapped back with it, making, uh, marking me with what my comrades will later call a kiss. I felt only the slightest tickle on my brow as the weapon recoiled in my hands, and then, as though a slow rain had begun without my notice, a wet stream crawled its way down my face. Unaware of any injury, I finished the exercise. Target, breathe, squeeze. Target, breathe, squeeze. These are what, one, what matter when one is shooting. When I return, my grass-adorned helmet in one hand and rifle in the other, one of our trainers pointed to the injury. Woo-wee! Looks like she gave you a little kiss on your forehead. Come over here and let's get you cleaned up. My hand touched my face and returned covered in camouflage paint and red. Her kiss would leave a scar visible for years. Hips. I read an essay recently that reminded radicals that we mustn't forget the history of appropriation and imperialism present in tattoos. The idea referred both to the recent tradition of tattoos of foreign languages on the body of Westerners and how tattooing was introduced to the West through Captain James Cook's exploration of the South Pacific and through the spread of the U.S. military. As a young American soldier in Seoul a decade earlier, I thought of neither of these fitting connections as a friend and I stumbled toward the back alley shop near what troops called Hooker Hill a bright-lit alleyway where Korean and Russian women called out to passerby from the doors of dimly-lit bars. Mister, I know you. As we entered the shop at the hill's base, the middle-aged Korean owner and artist quickly recognized me and my friend Danielle as American and as soldiers. We were swiftly seated, and as we fingered through folders of bright illustrations, the artist, clad in a rolling stones tee, pointed at the wrapped needles he held. Clean, American, first use. We agreed on a price, the shop minimum, and began to set up the station. I locked the door, he insisted, as he pulled the bolt lock shut. The legal status of tattoos being gray in a country generally, but entirely off limits for U.S. soldiers. This sounds familiar, I know. Cliché, even. It's eerie how traditions like this, like soldiers getting drunk in a foreign country and getting a tattoo, repeat themselves how young men and women mimic cultural fables. In the morning, as a shower trickled over my hungover head, I glanced down at my first tattoo, my queer tattoo. I had eschewed the anchors, pinups, and eagles so many soldiers of my period received, accepting instead a, fly, a flaming star just below my waistline on my taut hip. The star was something slightly off, something just a bit feminine, something hidden. Hands. I don't belong here. The Baltimore Veteran Affairs Hospital is for old men. Veterans with mesh caps uh, with Korea and Vietnam emblazoned on them. Broken men. Worn bodies. A thin, camouflage man, a thin man in camouflage pants wheels an oxygen tank behind him. A thick man showing off his tattooed arms coughs a wet cough into a towel. Part of me wishes I could say that I shattered both my hands doing something heroic. How might a warrior injure himself? Charging a hill? Shrapnel? Gulf War syndrome, maybe? Tiny desert sands stirred with weaponized chemicals? Perhaps damp jungle air mixed with defoliating herbicides? In my early 20s, I broke my hands skateboarding down a hill. 
I raced down it without any protective gear as quickly as I could, allowing the hot desert air to slap at my face. When I lost control, I tried to bail, try to feign running through the air fast enough to hit the ground and keep moving. When I came down, I didn't stand a chance. My hands hit first, and gravity scraped me along the asphalt for several feet before leaving me to rest. My army buddies told me earlier that day that it was a dangerous hill to speed down, and I was stupid for trying. Later that week, my boss threatened to charge me with dereliction of duty for skateboarding when I was on call. Soldiers have this myth, and I never knew if it was true or not, that troops engaging in self-destructive behaviors can be charged with damaging government property themselves. The doctor cut open both of my hands and tried to bolt the bones back together. When he opened my left hand, the bone was worse off than he thought, so he slipped in a cadaver donor's scaphoid while I was under for surgery. He told me just as casual as that, the day after, in a recovery bed. Army doctors get away with a lot. In a cubicle where I wait for the benefits administrator to come talk to me, there's a pamphlet for atomic veterans. That's what Veterans Affairs calls vets exposed to ionizing radiation during America's atomic era. It's common enough they have a name for it. Vets stationed out of Hir- outside of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, of course, but also veterans near testing ranges in the U.S. and vets who are intentionally exposed to radiation for the sake of testing its impact on the human body. Many vets in these later categories were sworn to silence, and for decades they couldn't legally discuss their exposure to anyone, including medical professionals. By the time the law came around that allowed them to seek treatment that many of them needed, they were already dead. Those still living have been carrying the secret so long that they still didn't come forward. This pamphlet in front of me is an effort to reach out to these atomic veterans, let them know that they are legally able to speak up and seek treatment for their wounds. I'm here because I need medical insurance and because I need to document skateboarding injuries that Veterans Affairs considers service-related because I was in the Army when they happened. I don't belong here. Arms. I collected a history on each arm as I served. At times, my choices bent towards tradition. Sailors who operated a ship's anchor windlass often tattooed hinges of the ditches on, their el- on the ditches of their elbows. Other times, resistance. The posters of radical political cartoonist Mike Fluganock decorate each shoulder. Sometimes pride. The purple, pink, and blue stars reflect the bisexual pride flag. At other times, penance. The pistol and skull in my arm came near my departure from service. With a sense of doom that hung over all of us as soldiers, my early 20s saw the addition of a marking that grows more and more humorous as it ages. Live fast, die young, tattooed on my biceps. Soldiers love slogans. Greg's forearm tattoo declared, death before dishonor. Abel's shoulder pistols were wrapped with, assist, protect, defend. Levi's back was a memento mori, die trying. Names and dates of the fallen are common. So too is a soldier's creed. I will never quit. Something simple, something meaningful. A saying to rally to, even if it isn't true. I blame the Roman poet Horace, who gave us the first such lie. Dulce et docorum est, popratia mori. 
And since you're not reading this on your phone, you can just Google it. It's, it is good and right to die for your country. Head. The second decade of the new millennium is filled with tracks on the reintegration of the warrior into non-military culture. What we missed, who we are, women and men caught between worlds, reintegration, assimilation, transition. It's true, of course, but most of this commentary misses the point. It's not just combat or PTSD or war ripping through those closest to you. It's culture shock. The military has its own rules, its own values, its own language. One can still be locked up for adultery in the military, or even consensual sodomy. A soldier can lose several months' pay and be confined to her barracks room just for being mouthy to her boss. When I got out of the military, I took an internship with the biggest LGBT rights organization in the country. Months before, I was a staff sergeant, broad-shouldered, and in charge of training dogs to protect bombs for the missions uh, Sorry, I lost my track there. Detect, uh, t- dogs to detect bombs for missions protecting the President of the United States. A dog and I worked with Secret Service, protecting the world's leaders. We trained with real bombs, carried real guns, real cowboy shit. Then I was an intern, a college student. I overdressed my first day as an intern, in tie and slacks and short-cropped hair among T-shirts and skirts. But I stood out in other ways, too. I worried about playing streaming music or using social media at my desk. I hesitated to join the early 20s interns on afternoon food truck runs. Progressive youth talk with our own code. Right and wrong are a language we've honed over the last last few years of college, and the gray ethics of military service during Iraq and Afghanistan left me an outsider from the start. How old are you? One college junior asked me with a raised eyebrow in our shared cubicle space. I had to relearn my position. As a young adult, as a worker, as a queer person, new language, new values, I felt at once years ahead and years behind my peers. That sort of displacement disorients everything. The veteran examines each action to determine if it makes sense under these new rules. Working at a university now, I find myself questioning every utterance. Does this sentence make sense to civilians, or is my army showing? Did you hear the one about the cookies sent to the deployed soldier? About the Marine and the professor, the veteran and the school desk, the on-base bar filled with wives the week after deployment? Veterans have their own mythologies, and the underlying theme of these stories is easy to read. Fear of being alone, humiliated, left behind, forgotten. The war in Afghanistan ended again in December of 2014. The story made a blip on the news, but competed with the normalization of relations between the U.S. and Cuba, the shooting of two NYC officers, and reports of hacking at Sony ahead of the release of a particularly belligerent film about North Korea. Our generation has no VJ Day Parade. We serve far from home, and life moves forward without us. We return to find everything change, and our identities develop differently than those who stayed. And when all of the fanfare and pride have receded, we often feel embarrassed for having to catch up. We took a different path than our peers, and when we leave that path, we often must backtrack before we can move forward. Whether we deployed or not, we all left home, those of us who served during, in the years during 
in the years following the day the towers fell. The world kept moving, and now we must either catch up or stay lost in the desert. Heart. On my chest, I left a mark, a heart, anatomic in design, with a quote, Get busy living or get busy dying. It's by Stephen King. It's a phrase I found particularly evocative in my youth, connecting it to blurred motivations behind why I joined the army and then why I chose to leave it. This isn't about that, or it is, I suppose, indirectly. Mental health professionals talk about the moral injury military service leaves on veterans, emotional conflicts arising from the transgressions of one's moral and ethical beliefs. Vets experience this sort of injury not only from their own actions, but from the acts of, quote, peers and leaders who betray expectations in egregious ways. Disclaimer, I've never killed anybody. Disclaimer, never ask a veteran if they've killed anybody. Yet in 2003, as U.S. ground troops moved from Kuwait into Iraq, as people around the world marched together as a plea for peace, I trained as a rooftop gunner, preparing all year with my fingers on the trigger of a machine gun. Later that year, when the world learned that a young military police had humiliated and terrorized detainees at Abu Ghraib prison using dogs, feces, nudity, and threats, I wore an armband embroidered with cross pistols and MP and then ran off to become a dog handler. I said nothing in 2005 when members of my unit recently returned from the correction centers at Guantanamo Bay, laughed and joked about barbecues and the quick reaction forces that scuffed up detainees at the illegal prison. I said nothing when a young corporal from the United States Regional Correctional Facility, Korea, giggled as he told me how forced washing started with the ass and crotch before moving to the face. I said nothing when my thrice-deployed colleague told me he couldn't wait to go back because, quote, shooting at Haji is simpler than dealing with ex-wife bullshit, end quote. In the month-long ritual that turns citizen in, citizens into warriors, service members are instilled with a new moral code, when and how it is all right to kill, why we must follow orders, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, and why the world is black and white. This acculturation process is meant to make the act of combat mechanical. Soldier is told, soldier does. Something else happens to the self during this period, too. Indoctrination beyond, follow orders. It is a formation of a we, a process in which supporting the in-group rises above what is doing what is right. It's the violation of this black and white that causes bewilderment. How does one mend the ethics of Haditha when the villains are wearing the same costumes as you? Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay, Ramadi. The fog of real life has no place in war. Thank you so much. It's a long one. That's like 18 minutes. Um, thank you. So yeah, that one was really rough. This one's uh, slightly less rough, um, slightly less dark. Um, this one is... Uh, titled What September Left. This is the second one I'm going to read, and then we're going to do some Q&A. Um, and this one's actually about um, the conversation I had with my mother when she find out, found out at 18 that I was joining the military. Anthony William Mall. Not just Tony, my full name. I need you to come out here and explain this to me. It wasn't a shout that my mother cast across the house just outside of Reno. 
But her voice was raised. It wasn't anger, not exactly. Her voice held back panic. The house was always dim. The curtains where we had them were always pulled, the Venetian blinds always down. In my bedroom, a dark cave in the back of the house, I had hung a thick comforter across the window to block the midday light that woke me most afternoons. Rolling off a futon, I groped through the pile of clothes and boots that littered the room and pulled out a pair of jeans I could slide on before following her voice to the dining room. I knew what this was about. I knew what she had found, what I had left on the dining room tables just an hour early or earlier for her to find. Official papers listing my social security number, birth date, and the result of my recent physical examination tucked neatly into a folder with a single star and the U.S. Army's current motto, Army of One, stamped across the front. Care to explain this, she asked, waving the folder at me with one hand, taking a long drag from her cigarette with the other. I'm leaving. She rolled her eyes. Oh, you're leaving. Did you think at all to ask me about this, or your dad? When are you going to talk to the recruiter? One of us will go down there with you. Mom, don't, don't you dare mom me. Mom, this has nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with her. My mother, who spent more time ensuring that the rent was paid than she did raising us in the traditional way, didn't teach me much in the way of how to live one's life. But she did tell me, from the time I could read, that I needed to keep my grades up. I needed to be the first to go to college. That young men who did not do so were at risk of being drafted or tricked into joining the army. For me to toss that lesson out entirely not only meant rejecting her position, but it made real one of her greatest anxieties. Besides, it's already done. I signed the contract. I'm leaving. I'm getting out of Reno. We could have come with you to talk to the recruiter. Christ, you can't just... You can't join the army with pink hair. Do you even know what the army is like? How do you know he didn't trick you into something that you don't know about? She tossed the folder down on the old oak desk and shook her head. This isn't, you couldn't have just signed everything that quickly. Jesus, Mom, I'm not stupid. I didn't get tricked into anything. I never gave my mother much credit, both because she was frequently a mess and because I was a teenager. But in that moment, panicked and angry, she was right and I was wrong. On both counts. Hello, is this Mr. Mall? As an 18-year-old barista with dyed hair and facial piercings, no one called me Mr. Mall. Who is this? This is Staff Sergeant, uh, Staff Sergeant Lamana with U.S. Army Recruiting. Am I speaking with Mr. Mall today? Yeah. Yeah, this is Mr. Mall. <laughs> I'm calling to talk to you about a well-paying career with the United States Army. Can I ask you a question, Mr. Mall? What do you do now for a living? I, um, I work in a bookstore. That was half-truth. I worked at a cafe in a bookstore. I served coffee to bookshoppers back when people still bought books in stores. Great. And how do you like it? If you don't mind me asking, how much does it pay? Not enough? I bet. We hear that a lot. Listen, our office just spoke to you about a year ago, and you said then you weren't really interested. If that's still the case, that's fine, of course. But I was wondering if anything had changed in your life, and if so, if you'd be interested in coming in and chatting. No commitment, just talking with us about what you want, what sort of career you're looking for. Of course things had changed in my life. Everything had changed in my life. I had gone from one odd teenage job to another. Pizza shop, bookstore cafe, 
even the kid who fixed arcade machines at Chuck E. Cheese. I had broken up and then got back together, and then broken up and then got back together with a girl from a nice neighborhood. I had recognized the hopelessness of my situation, stuck in the valleys north of a town where working-class folks held warehouse jobs and started accidental families younger than they should. I kept saying I would soon head to college, community college, to start. But the truth is, I didn't know how to apply to college, and neither did my parents, who went straight from work after high, straight to work after high school. I didn't know how grants work, or even loans, or where to start. Teachers told me throughout my teens that I was bright, but everyone knew I wouldn't be the first bright stone to be lost in Nevada's foothills. Then there were the plains. In retrospect, part of me hates to admit it was the plains. Too cliche, too predictable, too perfectly responsive to the narrative the nation crafted in the wake of it all. But just months earlier, on a boring September morning, a few hours after my boring shift at a boring job, I found myself half-dressed and staring at my television, slack-jawed with awe, floating in helplessness. Looking back later, we will all know that this is how they got us, that feeling of vulnerability. It's how a selfish nation rallied ourselves into enlisting, to donating blood, to volunteering time, to hanging up flags on the porch. Surely we don't live in a world where buildings can be felled by planes, where shining cities be, can be transmuted into smoke plumes. Surely there is something we can do. And so, all across the country in the months that followed, that morning, the idle hands of people who felt helpless were turned into the hands of volunteers, police, firefighters, and of course, soldiers. Yeah, I might come chat with you. When can I come in? Two weeks, my mother gasped. That's not enough time to uproot your whole life. What about your job? What about packing? What if your dad and I go down there and talk to him and we straighten this all out? There's nothing to straighten out. This is a new job. It's a better job. Besides, I'd rather go now than wait around and have people trying to talk me out of it. What are you going to do? Drive a tank? You're going to be a medic? The military police. What are you talking about? You don't even like the police. She was mostly right, but I would never let her know it. For many who grew up poor, the police didn't seem like a group of people around to help us. For us, police were the men with guns. Police were the ones who caused trouble. They're the ones who chased dirtbag kids like us when we skateboarded through the mall parking lots. The ones who assumed we had drugs when they caught us. Police wanted me in juvenile hall. Police oversaw our roadside work crew of teenage delinquents. Our fathers and our siblings were afraid of the police. Our communities avoided calling the police. The military police were a default choice for me. I scored excellently on the test given to prospective recruits, but I was also eager and desperate to leave home in a hurry. When I was told I couldn't be placed in any of my first three jobs in the next few months, I took the very next thing they offered me, personal ethics be damned. Her long chipped nails tapped against the table as she talked to me. She alternated quick drags from her cigarettes and sips from her soda can as she tried to figure out a way out of this. Where will you go? Seventeen weeks in Missouri. And then? I shrugged. Could be anywhere after that. I just... I don't get why you would do this, Tony. Boys like you don't go and join the army. What about college? What about the war? Again, she was right. I was the sort of boy who played video games, 
who went to raves and punk rock shows and flirted with boys. I was not the kind of person who joined the army, except that I was poor, which made me exactly the type of person who joined the army. That made college a factor I had considered. Like many enlisted men and women of the time, college was a carrot they used to lure us in. Money for college offered us the promise of an army as a stepladder. At some ambiguous point in the future, I'd be a college-educated man, not a tent-sleeping grunt, and certainly not a midday working, waking barista still living at home with his parents in a rat trap of a desert town. War was another factor I had considered, though on that point I had significantly miscalculated. They've been bombing since October. How long do you think the war will really last? By the time I'm done in June, we'll probably be all wrapped up. Thank you all so much for coming. And that it's going to be Q&A now, but this is also being recorded for the Pratt Library podcast. So I know it's sort of awkward, but uh, Tracy is going to pass around a mic for anyone who has questions so that it can be recorded well for the podcast. If anyone has questions. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different forms of intimacy that are in the book. Um, I noticed when you were reading, even in the language, there's a kind of oscillation between longer sentences, shorter sentences, fragmentation, and underneath it all, it seems to be a lot of, um, both in syntax and in content, um, revolving around different kinds of intimacy. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about, about that. Yeah, the book's really fragmented, both in sort of form, but also, as Stephen describes, in intimacy. So there's parts where I'm being very casual, I'm joking. Not that piece, you sort of got a sense that sort of a little bit of it's tongue-in-cheek, a little bit it's casual. And then there are later pieces in the book, particular pieces where I'm describing um, a comrade of mine um, who took her life, where it gets very, very um, deep and emotional and, and... I've thought a bit as both a writer and now looking back on the book and how that's tied to, to structural form and syntax. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I'm drawing a direct line yet other than the book is intentionally fragmented and varied, and that happens on a lot of different levels, right? So it happens on the form, it happens in the pace, it happens in the subject matter, in the linearity, um, and certainly in stuff like intimacy and sincerity as well. That's a really good question. Thank you, Stephen. Anyone else? Hey, Anthony. Um, hi, Doug. Hi. It's good to see you. You as well. Um, writing a memoir, writing about one's personal life and personal experience um, strikes me as a a real act of courage, you know, just in terms of stepping up and doing it. But I wonder, were there places where you found yourself editing out some stuff that you you thought maybe best not to include? The reason I ask is I, I have lots of great stories, <laughs> lots of great stories that include my family, yeah. and lots of great stories that would hurt them if yeah. I you know, wrote them and published them. And so it makes it very difficult to sit down and start writing them. Yeah. 
that's a great question. Um, so when I was getting my MFA and just generally among people who write memoir, there's this conversation about the ethics of memoir, um, which is sort of tied to what you're saying, and um, how do you tell a story that um, shows someone that you still care about in a bad light? And when I was in my MFA, before I was having a book published, I was a hardliner. I'm like, no, fuck that. Like, this is what happened. I'm putting it in the book. Um, and as the closer it became to reality, the less, the more I'm like, oh, shit, should I put that? Um, and I ended up finding myself somewhere in the middle. So uh, I write in the beginning of the book. Some names are changed. Um, I... Uh, I, I, t- I don't leave anything out. I don't. I think it's really important to put it in, but I also think it's really important to consider that, like, as a writer and as an artist generally, that doesn't absolve you from being like a human who has to exist in the world, right? Like, if it's something shitty to do, it's something shitty to do, even if it's for good art um, and or good writing. Um, so it, I, I try my best to strike a balance. It's sort of a, a gray answer, but that's sort of where we land. Um, for me personally, what I've revealed about myself. Uh, a lot, a lot. I think, especially early in the book, I'm really trying to show how crappy I was at 18, 19, uh, up to 25, 26-ish. <laughs> uh, jury's still out on that one. Um, <laughs> uh, but I don't want to be, I don't want to create the character of me as unredeemable either. Um, and also I have blind spots to the places where I've been crappy at times too. Um, but I do put some stuff in there. You know, I put about like, you know, when I when I first hear the moment of the Iraq war kicking off, my biggest concern is that my leave is going to be canceled. Um, and that's who I was at the time. I was a crappy 18, 19-year-old kid who was selfish and American. Um, and I put really intimate stuff in there. So, like, this week I got to go on Sheila Cast's show. She's a local NPR host. And we didn't get on the show, but afterwards she was talking with me about this piece where I talk about like dressing up in femme and flirting with dudes online, and I'm like, oh, Sheila Cass knows that I like cybered. Uh, <laughs> um, but that I'm actually much more comfortable with than like the fact that putting someone else's secrets out there, and it's something that I've sort of tempered over the last couple of years as the books come to fruition. Well, <clears throat> I don't think that was critical of your mother particularly. I mean, you're the one making all the mistakes, not her. So, But, um, but I would say that although you call it Marx and you mean it not to be M-A-R-X, that, um, that actually I think Lenin is, is very much present here in this room because Lenin says until all the voices are heard, we cannot have the revolution. And you are a new voice. I mean, what I heard from the Sheila Cass that I want to hear about more is the homoeroticism of war yeah. and the, um, the fact that every war story is a love story <clears throat> and it's generally a love story between people of the same uh, in the old style gender yeah. so, so I want to hear more about that but I also just want to hear from you more and more and more because you are such I think an incredibly new voice that has not been heard before partly because you're what you call poor and um, partly because you're a, were a pink-haired... T- 2001, you had pink hair? Yeah. <laughs> you were yeah. that far ahead of everybody else? That was pretty early on to have pink hair. So, I mean, anything that you can give us would be fine with me, but I just want you to keep talking, yeah. and particularly about this whole new line of thought, yeah. which is that war 
is a homoerotic activity, and we better start dealing with that. Yeah, that, that, thank you so much for your kind words, but also for that comment. It's really great that there's interest in that. I'm, uh, I mentioned on the radio that I'm uh, working on a PhD, and my dissertation is on that subject. It's about the specifically the homoeroticism of the poetry of war, so it draws a line from, from the Iliad through our contemporary wars um, to talk about that subject. Um, and and I think it is, like you said, it's not being talked about, but it's just below the surface because when I mention it, when I mention my dissertation, people's eyes don't glaze over. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I see that. I see that. Um, and so it's just there. It's, it's ready for people to talk about. Um, and I think they're really great people. Uh, Jay Halberstam has a great book, um, uh, a, a couple books. Jay Halberstam writes a lot about masculinity. Um, and there's a book. Oh, oh. What's Jay Halberstam's book on it? It's Feminine Masculinity, I think is what it is. Uh, and there's another one called Not Gay um, by Kate Ward. And both actually are talking about this subject, about um, the war, the military, war, the environment they create are very homoerotic things. And our current culture just refuses to acknowledge it more often than not. I certainly enjoyed your talk, especially as the gentleman noted in front, the, uh, the rhythm of the language. My question is, uh, you're talking about growing up in, what, I guess, Nevada, poor, yeah, yeah. and the, I guess your communities, uh, at least many people in your communities, or some people in your communities, I guess, values and attitudes towards the uh, police. Yeah. So my question is, how, once you got into the military, you did not succumb to that indoctrination <laughs> and come out and be... A red, white, and blue American <laughs> police officer. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I think uh, as a dude, and particularly a white dude, a lot of people are surprised that I'm red in the way I'm red. Um, but I'm the way I am, and I care about the issue I care about because I'm also queer, right? So being queer helps me realize it puts me outside of the mainstream narrative, and I get to see how people who are also excluded from that mainstream narrative it helps me see that, just, just to see it. Um, and I think that helped me when I got in the military. Um, and it helped me see how their narrative was, was sort of constructed, right? So they're telling me, like, we're all about integrity, right? And I'm like, okay. And you want me to lie for the eight years that I'm here about being straight. Um, and so it, just that, seeing how that narrative was broken helped me see how the other narratives they had offered me were broken. And, and being a queer person helped me see... You know, and being poor and queer in Reno, which is very white and brown, uh, Latinx sort of city, um, helped me see the ways that here on the East Coast and South, in very black cities, the people feel similarly about the police. Yeah. Um, can you tell us maybe something that you struggled with in the writing of this book? Um, for me, a part I struggled with was like really order more than anything, and that's sort of tied to also when to stop um, for a book like this. It's a really short book, um, so the way order and length worked for me was really complicated as a writer. I didn't know there's a lot of space between the sections, um, and I don't know when when I need to add more, when I need to leave those gaps, um, when 
when I'm just, am I stopping at just a coherent narrative? Do I want to fit it all in if I'm covering a particular period? Those are really difficult questions for me. Um, and like a lot of writers, I was able to resolve those questions by talking to other writers I trust. So a few, in, a lot of people in this room actually have read sections in development of the book, either because they were in my MFA, because they're my partner, um, because they were beta readers. Um, and so really talking with other writers and picking their brain about um, what is this enough? Is this too much? What order does this need to go in? And we end up doing small things like uh, there are a lot of list or fragmented sections in the book, and we ended up taking a couple out or just pulled them out because there were too many. We ended up resolving, making a couple more more just straightforward narrative um, rather than, than fragmentation. Um, so small things like that. But it was through other writers and, and a writing community that helped me with that. Otra preguntas? One more. Yeah. Um, I, it, it's very interesting to hear what your experience was under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I'm, I'm wondering, have you spoken with many servicemen or veterans who have gone in after that time? I, one thing that struck me was that you talked about wanting to go in so that you could afford college. And I have a friend who a few years ago went in because he had gone to college and he was stuck with all these loans and he you know, couldn't get a job. So you know, it's sort of paying for college in reverse. But I, I wonder, are there other differences that you see when you speak to these guys? Yeah, I think what I was saying to, to Dolan Hubbard's question relates to that too and that like, I, the narrative they gave me was incongruent with the experience I had. And now that that narrative's changed, I'm really curious the experience of those vets. So I don't have any friends who are currently LGBTQ plus and serving um, that I can think of. I have a few family members, but um, they're not LGBTQ. Uh, but I have met a lot of people now at Pride festivals or who are friends of friends, especially you know this area, there's a lot of, of military. So I have met people who are in... Um, and they, it's weird because I'm like, oh yeah, we share an experience, but there, I'm also like a vet who's well separated from it, who has leftist politics, um, and they're active serving soldiers who are still very hoorah, wave the flag. Um, so it's tough to tell, but it is really weird that the, the talking to people I know who are in, who are out and just living their lives, um, it's even weirder for me to talk to the people who post don't ask, don't tell are able to come out and still decide not to just because of the, the cult, their work culture uh, for their particular unit. Um, and that's really interesting to me, too. I've talked to a couple people who are like, nah, none of their business. I don't want to come out. And it's really weird for me, having spent eight years being like, oh, you <laughs> quiet, right? So. Cool. I think that's all we have time for. Thank you all so much for coming and for supporting me. Um, so I said in my last reading too. Uh, I think signing is a weird like thing, signing books. But uh, I'm I know I'm a minority in this sense. So I will. I'm happy to sign books. I'm going to sit at that table out there if anyone wants to buy and or get their book signed. Um, thank you all for coming, and I really appreciate it. This podcast.
podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.